0: Actions, Responses to Trafficking, the podcast that shines a spotlight on new and established trafficking responses in the UK and beyond. Hi, and welcome to the first episode of Actions, the Responses to Trafficking podcast. I'm Catherine Baldacchino, and this is a podcast where I speak to people who are working in different ways to respond to trafficking in order to help share their work with other people working in the field. Today, I'm delighted to share with you the conversation I had with Jean-Pierre Gauchy, who works for the British Institute of International and Comparative Law, about an important piece of research that he's been working on. We spoke in July 2020 when the first project activities were still being finalised. So depending on when you're listening to this, the literature review and the other project outputs might already be available. So check out the Bickle website for more information. All the links are in the show notes. So, thanks for downloading this episode. I hope you find this as informative and interesting as I did. And get in touch with any feedback or further questions via Actions Podcast on Twitter. Enjoy and thanks. I'm so pleased to be speaking to Jean-Pierre Gatti today. Jean-Pierre is a Senior Research Fellow in Public International Law and Director of Teaching and Training at the British Institute of International and Comparative Law, Bickle. I've known Jean-Pierre for quite some time. We've worked together in the same sector many moons ago in the tiny little island of Malta. And I think it's great that we also get to work in the same field again in the UK now. Jean-Pierre, welcome! Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. It's really good to see you. You're looking very well and rested after a bit of leave. I know you've had.
1: Yeah, very much looking forward to this conversation, but also yeah, being back and uh, feel a bit refreshed after a week away and. Uh... Yeah, getting back to work.
0: Awesome, really great to have you. And you're usually traveling extensively around the world, usually in your your role. Your social media is literally a world map of all the places you're flying off to for various conferences, meetings and events. How are you coping with being in the UK for such an extended period of time now?
1: Um, It's been interesting. So I had quite a few flights and trips planned kind of for the first kind of quarter of the year or First half of the year, which most of which got cancelled. Um, I was away just before kind of lockdown kind of kicked off. So at the end of February, I was in Lagos discussing um, migration and externalization. Then I was in Aberdeen discussing the Mediterranean. And then I came back um, and had all these plans of going to Malta, going to various other places, um, partly related to the project that we're going to be discussing all of which basically went out the window. And uh, yeah, I've not been in the same country for this long, in a very long time. So it's, in that sense, it's been quite positive actually. Kind of, it feels good to be kind of in one location for an extended period of time.
0: I'm hoping you you manage to do some trips really soon. And for people who haven't met you before, uh, could you say more about yourself, more about your current role, what you've studied and your path to this current point?
1: So, I'm a senior research fellow at the British Institute for International Comparative Law, which is a research institute focusing on the various aspects of international comparative and rule of law issues, not only in the UK, but from an international perspective. I'm in the Centre for International Law within that, which focuses obviously on international law issues and I focus on human rights and within that on migration and to some degree within that on human trafficking as well so that's kind of my specialization i've been in the uk now for 10 years i moved here in 2010 to do my phd at king's um, which also focused on human trafficking and the asylum process um, and then have been working at bickle since 2014. besides working at bickle i'm also co-founder and co-director of an organization in malta called the people for change foundation Um, And that a lot of my kind of interest in migration comes from working in Malta, working on human rights issues in Malta and obviously migration and asylum and trafficking were kind of key issues in that context as well. So from there, kind of speaking to some of the people I was working with came the idea for my PhD and then from that comes kind of the the next steps and eventually where I am now Um, but I'm still connected so so I'm still director of the organization of MOLT as well which is kind of also more kind of advocacy based than research based I mean we do a lot of research and that's kind of the main thing we do anyway but the research is more advocacy targeted as well so it's a combination of those two Um, and then at Bickel I've started actually working at Bickel in 2014 in a kind of research coordinator role focusing on something that had nothing to do with migration um, but since then kind of have kind of gone back to my migration routes and at the moment I'm working on two key projects um, one looking at um, migrants at sea um, and specifically the role of private vessels when they rescue migrants at sea and then the second is the one that we'll be discussing which is A project that looks at determinants of anti-trafficking policies Um, and then obviously the my broader research is around trafficking and then around um, access to protection issues primarily at sea but not only
0: Mm. really really interesting and i think there's a lot there actually once um, we start to think about the connection between asylum and trafficking and trafficking based asylum claims which i know is is your focus as well so Yeah, a lot of juggling, it sounds like, as well, that you're doing. And what is it that motivates you about this field, about this particular role that you're in at the moment?
1: I like research, and I like research that is policy-oriented. So both Bickel and PFC, kind of the research that we do, is focused on policy change. So it's not research for the sake of research. Um, And I, I find that very interesting, but also very kind of motivating in the sense that you can see an impact, even if it's not a direct impact right away. I think the other thing that keeps me motivated is that there are so many angles to the same issue, right? So I feel like as an international lawyer, um, you can literally cover most areas of international law within the area of migration. And I think that's also extremely interesting. So my focus, obviously, is on international law, I should say. Um, And I kind of come to the trafficking issue and the migration issue from a legal perspective, even though, obviously, over the years I've done work, kind of research and other work from a policy perspective, political science perspective to a lesser degree, social science perspective and working with various colleagues who are social science experts, et cetera. So it's Mm -hmm. been a really interesting process. And I think that conversation between disciplines, but also across the various issues that come within migration is kind of what motivates me. Um, Basically you can do migration for 20 years and not spend more than a couple of weeks working on a singular issue. And I think that's really interesting. Um, and motivated.
0: Absolutely. And so true about that interdisciplinary approach as well, and how you very much need to have like a broad spectrum understanding of, of, you know, the social implications, the legal implications and, and be able to thread those things together.
1: And I think it's also realizing that the law is only part of a solution, right? I mean, sometimes the law is the problem as well, but many times, let's put it this way, the law is part of the solution. Um, And I think that's where the interdisciplinary angle comes in, which is realizing that it's only part of the solution and not the whole solution to all problems. Um, And I feel like sometimes lawyers, especially international lawyers, we do tend to think that international law has the solution for everything. And I think that is a limiting factor for for us um, in the sector because we do kind of assume that the only way you change things is through international law. Um, And I think, based on the last 15 years of working in this area, I think international law is one of the factors that improves things, but it is also the result of that improvement. So the law changes because our perceptions of issues changes, and the way we think about issues changes. And I think that's, um, yeah, that's an interesting cycle to go through, I think. And I think at different points over the last 10, 15 years, I've kind of thought... More or less, that the law was the solution to everything.
0: That's really interesting and really validates the role of civil society organizations and people working on the front line and, and how, and people with lived experience, and how that should be then informing changes and developments in the law.
1: Yeah. And I think part of the role, as I see it, is actually helping that translation of the lived experience or the social reality into what does this mean from a legal perspective? what does this mean for the law? What does this mean in terms of how we need to change the law to make sure that we're responding to those lived realities? Um, I mean, my PhD topic came from uh, someone who I was informing about rights, um, who asked me a question, basically. Um, She was a Nigerian national who had been uh, trafficked to Malta. And she asked me a question, which eventually became my PhD question. And a lot of the work I've done since then has been revol- has revolved around answering that one question, essentially, which is what happens to me after I'm done collaborating with the authorities, which I still think is one of the biggest weaknesses in anti-trafficking law, for example, um, and one where we don't have, the law still does not provide us with a solution.
0: Right? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's absolutely right. And we'll definitely be able to discuss that a little bit more Later on. Um, Could we focus then a little bit more on Bickle as an organization? Um, Which is a great acronym for the way it rolls off the tongue. And it stands for the British Institute of International and Comparative Law. Uh, It's a leading international research centre and contains the Bingham Centre for the rule of law as well. There's been some really, really interesting events that I've been able to attend um, that have been held by the organization. And I have generally felt that there's a real convening spirit or a real enabling spirit in the Bickle organisation. For the benefit of those less familiar with the organisation, can you share more about what it is, what it does, and and how it came into being?
1: So we're an organisation that's 60 years old, um, and we came together, the kind of coming together of two other organisations, one of which is now 105 years old and one of which is even older than that. Um, And the idea is that it is a research institute which is completely independent from universities, governments, etc., And we focus on the various areas of international law and promoting international law amongst kind of the legal public in the UK. So our audience is obviously very broad, but we do target um, a legal public in in many ways um, through our work. We cover all sorts of areas of international and comparative law. So human rights within that business and human rights within that also migration within that um, climate change. Um, We have people working on investment law, we have people working on trade law, we have colleagues who work on the rule of law, and specifically, so the Bingham Centre that you mentioned focuses primarily on the UK, um, but not only, obviously. So we do a lot of the kind of international rule of law stuff, but also linking those various things together. So I think what Bickel is very good at is one being a convening hub for kind of people within, but also external to the organization that come together at events or come together at um, conferences, webinars, podcasts, whatever else, but also the, within the organization, linking the various issues. So for example, I am currently involved in some work with a colleague on cultural heritage, climate change and migration in the Pacific. So, you know, th- there, there are topics that I don't necessarily work on myself, but I'm working with colleagues who are experts in those areas. And that is a really enriching experience, I think. Um, and we ov- obviously also have kind of specialized projects, but then also more kind of cross organization work. Um, and yeah, I've had the opportunity to work on British influences on international law in the last hundred years to um, electoral justice to migration and trafficking so it's it's a really wide range of topics I think the the thing that was furthest away from what I usually do was a project on personal injury claims in, in and insurance payments so it it really is a very wide area of work that we cover um, but it all comes together um, and that's where the international comparative law angle comes in
0: that's so fascinating and what an enriching experience to be able to draw from so many different disciplines and to actually start to blend learning or or principles or practices from different sectors and start to thread them together
1: yeah and I mean it it is remarkable how closer how much closer things are than you would originally think that they are and how kind of things come together and I, I used to think that that was the case in Malta because the international law group, the international community is relatively small. But even in the UK, when you think about the teams rather than the people involved, um, even those teams are much more connected than you would often think. So you know across the Institute we, we've done some work on reparations, for example. So you, you look at it from the business and human rights perspective, you look at it from the human rights perspective, you look at it from a business perspective, and all of those things come together in kind of in a context that you wouldn't necessarily otherwise think. Um, and because we're a relatively small organization, so there's only about 45 of us working in, in Bickel, there is that kind of sense of community as well between the various researchers. Um, And that's been a little bit more challenging in the last few months, obviously, because we're all working from home, we're all working remotely. But at the same time, because we are such an international group, we all travel quite a lot, etc., which means that we're used to having a lot of our conversations via email or via Zoom or
0: whatever else. And are you all mostly based in London ordinarily? Is that where your office is? Do you have people working from elsewhere? on a more permanent basis?
1: Our office is in London, so we're in Brussels Square. Um, have been there for, for a while. Um, but we do have people in various countries. So we have uh, colleagues who do quite a lot of work in Paris. We have colleagues who do quite a lot of work in Brussels. We have uh, Bickel Hong Kong, where we have colleagues at the uh, Chinese University of Hong Kong, who are also involved in the organisation. So you have people who are kind of full-time Bickel workers who are, who live elsewhere, but also people who are working for other organisations but are either external fellows or otherwise linked to Bickel and its work. And we do cover quite a few countries. We have colleagues in the US as well, um, and we're kind of on a global outreach stage of the organisation at this point where we're trying to reach out to various other countries as well and kind of develop relationships there, whether it's with universities or with similar research institutes or with individual researchers,
0: essentially. Mm. Certainly gives you a, a really varied and broad perspective, I think, in the organisation, doesn't it, to, to reach out in that way. Um, so let's focus then specifically on the project, um, the uh, Determinants of Anti-Trafficking Efforts project. And then within that, there's a, a newer COVID-related project um, embedded within that. Um, and I've been, uh, I've enjoyed, really enjoyed being involved in, in a, quite a minor way um, as in an advisory capacity in that project. Um- But I've been really interested to to follow the developments and the findings. And I do think it's quite an ambitious project. It's, to my knowledge, (laughs) the first of its kind, um, really examining the factors that contribute to efforts to respond to trafficking. Um, So can you tell us more about the project? What is it and what are you doing on it?
1: Yeah. So the project is a two-year project that we started uh, at the end of last year. It's funded by the Department of State of the US government. Um, And it's a project that looks at why do countries improve their anti-trafficking policies, essentially. So what we're trying to understand is what are the factors that influence governments in improving or not improving their anti-trafficking responses across prosecution, protection and prevention. So across the three Ps um, in the kind of traditional jargon. Um, So we're doing that through a number of different uh, streams. So the first one is a literature review, um, which has involved kind of looking at academic and grey literature on, usually on policy developments, and from that trying to kind of extrapolate some of the findings that are specific to what caused those changes, because there's very little actually written about what causes changes. And what has been written is actually focused usually on... uh, kind of a few countries at best or on one determinant in particular. Um, So that's one stream. The second stream is looking at kind of quantitative analysis. So looking at different indices, whether it's GDP, whether it's the um, the, obviously the TIP report, whether it's the Modern Slavery Index, whether it's um, the Transparency International Corruption Perception Index, the Rule of Law Index by the World Justice Project, And trying to understand, are there correlations between improvements in one of those areas compared to improvements in anti-trafficking responses? Um, So that's a kind of second stream or the second part of the first stream, which is the desk research stream. So the next part then is expert interviews. Um, And originally we set out to do 25 interviews. Um, We've actually ended up doing a lot more than that. We're at uh, 45, I think. At the latest count, and we're still kind of organizing a few more, and that's trying to understand from experts working at the international level on trafficking, what are their opinions about what are the factors that influence anti-trafficking efforts. The next stream is a global survey. So this is something that we're in the middle of kind of creating at the moment. We're coming up with the survey questionnaire. And that is one that we'll send out, and hopefully some of your listeners will be able to respond to those uh, to that survey as well. Um, but we're hoping to send that out to kind of the global anti-trafficking movement to get their perception of what are the factors that influence anti-trafficking efforts. And then we're also doing a series of case studies, um, which will start towards the end of this year, and we're looking at ten countries. Um, that have improved their inter-trafficking policies over the last 10 years, or at least the indices indicate that they have, and trying to understand what are the factors that influence that in those particular countries. So the survey will give us kind of the the global picture, whilst the case studies will hopefully give us a bit more of the meat behind um, those findings. And I, I mean, as far as I'm aware, at least, this is the first of its kind research looking at determinants and looking at determinants across kind of the, the, across the globe, but also looking at across various determinants. So not looking specifically at one determinant against one index. So yes, it is an ambitious project. Um, <laughs> I'm lo- very lucky to be working with an excellent team of um, researchers at Bickel, Idel, Iris and Victoria, uh, who is the project manager. We're also working with consultants. We'll have kind of national consultants for the case studies. So it's a, and we have the experts Panel uh, of which you remember, and it's it's a really interesting process of both actually kind of doing the research, but also thinking about how do we make sure that the findings that we're coming up with are actually useful for people um, on the ground. So, and this is where my NGO background comes in, right? So I've been kind of advocating for various things in in the trafficking sector and migration sector for some years, and it's trying to understand what is likely to be an effective way, or what is likely to influence positive change, or to affect to result in positive change in anti-trafficking mm. policies.
0: So, you're really hoping to make something that is useful and usable and practical. Yeah, exactly.
1: And I think that's also where the expert panel and kind of working with colleagues, including some of the experts we're interviewing, etc., is really important because they can help us translate kind of research findings, which can be quite heavy into something that is actually useful um, on the ground. And we've had, I mean, we've had great support from everyone we've interviewed. Um, The funder, um, the State Department, the the grant officer there, or the the project officer there, have all been incredibly um, supportive of this work and what we're doing. And yeah, it's ambitious, but it's, I think Mm. it's it's something that's also quite important to do. And it's something that is, likely to result in positive change hopefully.
0: Yeah I definitely agree and that is exactly the the part of the project that interested me the most is that I think we often focus on what the actual response is or what governments are doing or what the consequences are for people who have experienced trafficking but we've not really truly understood what is it that motivates governments to create new policies or demotivates or you know what other factors how does other you know factors of of migration interact with trafficking responses how does you know media and and I know these are things that are coming through the research so far Um, what what are some of the themes coming through the literature review that you're starting to see so far
1: yeah so there's a few things that come out really clearly so one is framing of trafficking and the impact that that has on responses Um, and within framing it kind of covers various things so one is is it seen as a serious issue to start with is trafficking seen as a crime issue versus a human rights issue also impacts how states respond Um, The other thing is, is it seen as a migration issue or is it seen more as a women's rights issue or a children's rights issue? Um, How are victims perceived? Um, And within all of these, you have different perceptions on... Obviously, if if you see it as a serious crime, then you're more likely to have states focusing on prosecution, but potentially less on protection. If there's a migration control angle put to it, then protection becomes a way of identifying smuggling or overlapping between trafficking and smuggling. And therefore, kind of the protections get sidelined in some ways. Um, So we're trying to understand also whether the determinants are different for prosecution or the kind of the criminal law side of things or the criminalization side of things. Compared to the protection of victims' side of things, for example, or the prevention side of things, the other thing that we also comes through um, as being very important is the role of international bodies um, and states' international reputation. So that includes obviously international law and adherence to international standards that countries have signed up to, whether that's the protocol or in the European context, the uh, Council of Europe Convention and uh, EU directives, but also things like monitoring bodies. So whether it's Greta, et cetera, but also individual countries monitoring bodies. And obviously the key example of that is the U.S. TIP report, um, which we see as something that comes across as being, whilst you have countries and you have experts who say, okay, there are problems with how certain countries are scored, et cetera. It is still something that influences states in their anti-trafficking efforts. And I mean, we see this, you know, in our work where states are more likely to do things if they think it's going to improve their, their ranking in those um, uh, rankings of by by other states, whether it's the U.S. Department of State or others. Um, so that's another key thing that comes across. And then the other thing which is related to framing is um, kind of media perceptions or kind of the public understanding of trafficking. And there we see a lot of kind of the... What one of the people that we interviewed called the taken effect, where you kind of see trafficking as this very kind of hyperviolent, kind of physical violence area, where then a lot of the other forms of trafficking that we know exist, but that might not be as physically violent, are not seen as being trafficking. Um, and equally, there we see some of the problems that come across with the terminology that we use for trafficking including around kind of modern slavery and the perception that comes from the word slavery and the links there. Um, So I think those are some of the initial findings anyway um, Mm. that are coming through in terms of determinants. And again, they vary a lot with um, whether the victims are nationals or whether they're migrants. Um, Interestingly enough, we have seen some research and some of our interviewees have actually highlighted that sometimes the... Migrant victims are identified sooner, partly because of the migration connection, but partly because of the relationship between the state that's receiving those victims and the state from where they are. Um, mm-hmm. But obviously, these are all very initial findings. Um, and most of these, unfortunately, are based on people's perception of kind of how they perceive things, because as you said, most of the research that's been done and most of the analysis that's been done is all about what has actually, what has been the policy change, what is the response, rather than what has caused the response. The other thing I will say that came across as being quite important, and I, the UK was mentioned multiple times as the example of this, is the role of individuals as kind of pushing that um, the anti-trafficking agenda. And in the UK, the, Theresa May comes across Multiple times in our interviews um, and in our research, as someone who kind of really heralded forward an anti trafficking response. Now, obviously, there are different views on how effective that response was and what the reasons behind that response were, but the role of a particular individuals kind of really pushing forward. And related to that is the role of NGOs. Um, we see in many countries that NGOs are critical in influencing government anti trafficking responses partly because they are offering the services themselves, which is obviously somewhere in between kind of influencing government, but at the same time offering the service. So the response of the country is better because that NGO is offering the service. And obviously that comes with all sorts of um, support or pushback from governments, depending on the context that you're talking about. Related to NGOs is the role that trade unions can play. And that is one area where we see there isn't much analysis yet, but it's an area where we see that there isn't much of a response yet by trade unions. So we see trade unions active in migration and labor migrants' rights um, in various countries, but they're kind of it, it's not something that comes across as being particularly strong, with a few exceptions in various countries, um, obviously, and in various regions as well.
0: That's so fascinating. And I think there's there's a lot there to digest, actually. And I think the thing that struck me as you were talking was actually it feels the more you start to unravel uh, one or two of the threads, you start to see actually how they're all intertwined. And, and as you were talking about framing and, and it's certain individuals that might be um, really pushing the agenda or, or the role of NGOs and Even the very existence of NGOs might have a lot to do with, you know, so many other factors as well. So I think the more you start unraveling, actually, it it does seem that it's all connected somehow.
1: It is all connected. And it's so one of the things we try to do for the literature review is actually map how the different determinants are connected. Mm -hmm. And I'm not particularly artsy, but I could not find a way to depict that without it looking like a complete mess. Because they are so intertwined. Yeah. And, you know, we, we kind of did create categorizations of like positive and negative um, and then internal pressure points versus external pressure points or structural issue versus issues versus pressure points. But even there, I mean, the same thing at, can at the same time be a determinant and an outcome. So political will is kind of at the basis of a lot of what the project is looking at. But one of the things that we've realized is the extent to which political will is itself an outcome of other things that change or influence that political will. But at the same time, if you look at a lot of the literature, it talks about political will as a determinant of other outcomes. So the same thing at the same time is an outcome and a determinant. But also the same thing can be a structural factor and a pressure point. Um, and at different points in time, the same thing can be positive and negative. Um, I think the yeah, those interconnections is what I'm hoping that the project will continue to kind of develop, and hopefully we'll find a good way of presenting those interconnections and just yeah. how important different things are. I think one of the things that the project is trying to look at is not only what are the factors, but also how important are different factors. And I think that is something that you don't quite get from the existing literature yet, Mm. is obviously in different countries, different things will be more or less important. And at different times, different things will be more or less important. Mm. Um, But I think it is something that's kind of a little bit like um, election polling, where, you know, people are, polled on various issues but some issues are things that you care about but not that much and some things are things you will vote to for a particular individual or party because they take a particular stand on that issue um so clearly that is much more relevant in terms of polling and i I think that is the sort of thing that we also hope to get out of this which is to understand what are the factors but how important are each of those factors in influencing
0: so, in many ways, the report and, and the findings and the research itself isn't necessarily going to be able to provide a magical formula that says if these conditions are in place, good policy will um, be created. But actually, helping advocates, helping frontline workers, helping policymakers to really assess what are the factors, what are the determinants in my context. And how do I utilize those to help improve policy change? Yeah,
1: exactly. Um, I don't think there is a single answer to this question. I think the realities in different countries are so diverse. The realities across, you know, even if you just think of COVID, um, the response to COVID, but also the way COVID has impacted anti-trafficking efforts in the last six months. One is so different across different countries the responses to it are so different. But also, if you think about the factors that were influencing most policy areas six months ago and most policy areas now, COVID would not have been a factor six months ago, seven months ago. But is, I mean, I I would guess top five issues affecting policy in pretty much every country in the world, right? So these things change over time. Equally, they change because... Um, Parliament change, governments change, who is in parliament change. So some of the research that's been done has looked at, for example, to what extent is the gender composition of parliament and governments impacting kind of anti-trafficking efforts. Um, So And all of those changes will will need to be looked at at the same time. But it's not the sort of situation where you can say, okay, if this one thing changes, then anti-trafficking efforts are going to improve. It is so many different things that have to come together um, that are required for, for change to actually happen. And hopefully, we'll try to, we'll start to understand some of those by the end of the project.
0: That's excellent. That'd be really, really effective then and really helpful, I think, for people that are working in the sector and probably feeling quite frustrated that they might feel that policy isn't changing, but actually a true acknowledgement of what those motivating factors are, I think, could help. Uh, even tactically. Um, and you mentioned COVID, which I'm glad. So how has COVID-19 actually impacted the project uh, rollout? And can you tell us more about the new COVID component of the project now, the way you've adapted?
1: So because the project was is research-based, so we've been able, luckily, to move ahead with the project in Not the way it was planned originally. So for the expert interviews, we had a number of kind of research trips planned um, to various kind of regional hubs where we were planning on doing those interviews. So those all had to be cancelled, except for a couple that we managed to do kind of before um, lockdown started. But we've changed that to Zoom interviews. And actually, in many ways, that's proven helpful in the sense that it's allowed us to actually interview people who are not based in those regional hubs where the trips would have been to. So obviously we would have done that anyway via Zoom anyway, but I think it's kind of given us more of a an open slate in terms of who we can reach, etc. Um, And one of the colleagues who was working with us on the project um, was actually based in Australia. And that actually allowed us to reach kind of completely different time zones as well. And that, kind of was also really helpful in reaching out to more interviewees etc um so in that sense that's so far how covid has impacted the project um, because those strips didn't happen there was also a bit of an underspend on the project because obviously most projects that are funded by the donor are impacted by covid many of them much more impacted than ours was they did kind of create a structure within Within the kind of framework to allow us to use some of the funding for kind of more COVID specific work. And through that, we've organized a webinar and we're hoping to do more research in the next few months on kind of what is the impact of COVID on anti trafficking efforts specifically. So we know there's quite a lot of research on kind of the increased vulnerability of victims of trafficking in the COVID space or in the COVID era and increased vulnerability of specific communities and specific groups. Within this time, and we're starting to see a bit more on how trafficking is changing in times of COVID. So more online exploitation, for example, or at least we think that that is happening, um, because obviously data is still kind of hard to come by at this stage. But we also we're very keen to look at how has COVID impacted anti-trafficking efforts. So shelters, whether it's shelters for victims, whether it's identification of victims whether it's prosecutions, whether it's prevention activities, um, etc. In particular, one thing that I am very interested to look into is um, the question of funding. Um, So COVID has seen a lot of funding being channeled towards responding to COVID, whether it's through kind of social protection programs, etc. And in some ways, we've seen positive things in anti-trafficking efforts because of COVID. Right. So we've seen countries that have said people who are in an undocumented stay status can have kind of their stay renewed, even though they're currently undocumented, which might not have been the case before. Yeah. Um, but also kind of social protection programs that we've seen kind of expanded that where people who might have previously not have access to certain kind of measures that can be seen as preventive in the context of trafficking um, have now Get a bit more access to those resources. But equally, I suspect there's a lot of context in which funding has been taken away from responding to trafficking to now also responding to COVID. And that's at the national level. At the international level, we also see a lot of kind of international development donors who are moving funding away from other areas of development into COVID. And I think. The risk with COVID is that we see it as an alternate problem, but in reality, mm-hmm. it's an additional problem, not an alternate problem. So all the issues that were there before are still there. It's just yeah. we now have to deal with COVID as well. And I think that's where the ris- the impact is going to be felt, especially in the next six to nine months, is when funding starts kind of being taken away from anti-trafficking response to other areas in response to COVID. So... That is the yeah. kind of, that is how we've dealt with, to some degree, how we've dealt with the underspend, but more importantly, how we've dealt with something that we think is going to be one of the main determinants of anti-trafficking efforts um, in the next year or two, possibly longer, right? So yeah,
0: um,
1: absolutely. I think that's the other, sorry.
0: That was just to say, it, it's definitely something we're concerned about across the board. I mean, especially in the UK, but internationally about, Organisations who were already quite small or didn't have a huge amount of funds actually really facing a lot of difficulty now as well because of the economic crisis that follows with COVID. And so what will the anti-trafficking sector even look like in a few months time, in a few years time? Um, and we are yeah, really facing quite scary times if we think about, you know, most of the support and protection programmes came from NGOs or, or civil society. Um and what will that even look like? What will victim support look like going forward? Yeah,
1: exactly. And I think there is going to be, there is going to be an effect, and I think it's not necessarily going to be a positive one, unfortunately, yeah. right? And especially for smaller organisation, organisations, where removing, you know, even just five, ten percent of the funding, could really mean that they're no longer feasible as organisations. And those are very often the organisations that are working on the ground. With, directly with victims offering the kind of services, whether preventive or protection, that yeah. the victims really need um, at any given moment. Um, yeah. And I think that is something that is worrying to say the least. Yeah. Luckily, I think there is an acknowledgement that COVID will have this impact now. Um, I think COVID has had the sort of response where every sector has said, This is how it's going to impact us. And to some degree, that. That has been the case also with the anti-trafficking sector. So hopefully that will in itself influence states in saying, okay, actually, if we do this, this is how the anti-trafficking sector is going to be informed uh, um, influenced. But we will see. And obviously, again, that response will change depending on the country, depending on kind of whatever other factors that would usually influence anti-trafficking efforts are also likely to influence how something like COVID or the response to COVID will influence the anti-trafficking measures in, in those countries.
0: Absolutely, yeah, and it is—it is very concerning, very worrying to think. Right, as you said, right at the moment when there's more people vulnerable to being trafficked, when there's such a high level of risk, is is right at the same time when a lot of organisations are potentially considering closing or reducing services. So, um, definitely a, a big concern going forward.
1: And I mean, it's yeah. not like there was additional money, uh, you know, overflow exactly. funding in the in the sector before this happened, right? So that's. The the sector in most countries, I mean the UK being a good example, you know it's not like anti trafficking NGOs had all this extra cash to that mm. went around that they that they were storing away for the rainy day. Exactly. They usually were, you know, kind of many organizations were just about surviving, um, and a, a lot of the organizations, and I think this is an issue with um, much of the human rights sector, especially within the kind of development, humanitarian slash um, kind of migration and trafficking space, it's all project based, right? Mm -hmm. So, so many positions, so many roles are based on project funding. And if that project funding isn't coming, because the the funders that would usually fund those projects are funding COVID response projects. then that could be really problematic for many organisations working in this area.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think you've captured all the the real concerns really, really well.
1: Just related to that, I mean, part of it is the reduction of funding. Part of it is also just delays in funding. So, you know, for many organisations, even just kind of delaying funding by six months to a year, that could be enough for that organisation to not survive that long, essentially.
0: Yeah, absolutely right. And yeah, thanks for mentioning that. I feel like we could speak for ages about the different <laughs> findings of the literature review. And I'm really, really looking forward to that being uh, available. And I have the draft. So I'm, I'm reading through that. And I'm fascinated by it. It's, it's really great. Um, if people want to find out more about the projects um, or about the COVID webinars and, and the things that are coming through that, how what, what's the best way for people to find out more about any of these things?
1: So the best way is to go on the Bickle website. So it's bicl.org. If you go on the main homepage, you will find links to our COVID work um, across the organization, including the webinar on COVID um, and then the trafficking efforts. If you click on the migration tab, you will also be able to access kind of information about the project um, and the rest of the work that we do in this in this space. And um, so you mentioned the literature review. Um, that will be the first output that will be published in the next couple of months. Um, and that will also be available on the website, but we're also hoping to make it available more broadly on kind of other platforms like um, academia.edu, LinkedIn, and similar platforms
0: as well. Excellent. So people will be actually able to see some outputs of the project quite quickly.
1: Soon. Actually. Yeah. In the next few months we'll start and hopefully by the time we start that we'll be kind of following on with other outputs as we go. So at the moment, we're focusing primarily on the development of the survey questionnaire, which will also be translated, etc., in various languages. We're focusing on the literature review. Um, we're focusing on the expert interview analysis and we're also focusing on the quantitative analysis, the correlations analysis. So it's quite a few streams of the project working kind of at the same time, which means that the outputs will start following on quite soon. And the survey um, should go live also within the next few months. Um, so obviously, I would encourage your listeners, um, especially those who are active in the anti-trafficking sector, to to respond to it. I, I should say that the the idea of the survey is to kind of reach out to both people who work in the policy sector within governments, but also people working in the NGO sector, because I think I suspect, and and I, I'm not basing this on on very much, but what someone working in an NGO thinks are the factors that influence policy and the what someone working in a government thinks influences policy will be quite different. And I think that will be one of the interesting findings to understand that kind of that gap in understanding what the fact is.
0: Excellent. And how can people find the survey if they'd like to fill that in? Is that going to be on the website as well?
1: That will be on the website, but it will also be circulated to a list of stakeholders. So if anyone is interested, please do get in touch um, via email. Um, it, we will post about it on the website on our social media so people will be encouraged to do it that way it's not live at the moment so I can't give you an exact um URL yeah. where people can find the survey
0: unfortunately following you on social media and looking at the website and possibly joining a mailing list would be the best ways to exactly do that. yeah. that's so great and all of that, those details will also be in the show notes as well for anybody listening so Jean-Pierre thank you so much for making the time to speak to me I found that really fascinating and I do hope you can come back to talk about more of the findings <laughs> down yeah, the line I would be
1: Delighted to. And thank you very much for having me um, and good luck with the podcast. It's
0: Thank you so much. It's a
1: really excellent um, opportunity for us to present the project, but also I think for us as people working in the sector to actually understand what else is happening within the anti trafficking sector, which I think is sometimes a bit lost in kind of people doing their own thing without other, uh, without realizing what other people are working on
0: absolutely and everybody's just so busy so yeah yeah, it's hard to keep on top of everything that's great it's been really good to talk to you so thank you so much and I wish you every success in this project and looking forward to hearing more about it
1: thank you very much
0: So thanks to Jean-Pierre for sharing this with us. Thanks also to you all for listening. For more information about the work featured in this episode, please check out the show notes. Find us on Twitter at Actions Podcast. You can watch the video recording of this discussion on our YouTube channel. The link is in the show notes. To get in touch or to suggest a topic to be featured in an episode, either direct message us on Twitter or alternatively email actionspodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe wherever you download your podcasts and feel free to leave a review. You've been listening to Actions, responses to trafficking podcast. Music used in this episode is Inspiration, written by Rayful Crux and sourced from FreePD.com. Actions is produced and presented by Catherine Baldacchino.